Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Martin Popoff to discuss his new book, David Bowie at 75. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Martin Popoff, the author of Bowie at 75. Martin, welcome to the show. Yes, thanks for having me, Nate. Very cool. And this is a beautiful book. Uh, for any David Bowie fan, this is this is a you know Beatles anthology style coffee table book that goes through his entire life and career, and it's part of a series. We had Alice the we discussed the Alice Cooper book a couple weeks ago, um, of you know kind of celebrating our rock icons as they turn seventy five, or sadly in Bowie's case, as he would have turned seventy five. So tell us about the overall project, how you got involved, kind of what the the vision of the book is. Yeah, so this is the publisher's idea, so Motorbooks, and they do a beautiful, beautiful job with the layouts and the photo acquisition and all that stuff. So this was their idea. They've also got at 50s, and I've actually uh, written, uh, uh, what have I done there? I, so I've done ACDC at 50 and KISS at 50, which is coming out a little later, but this was uh, the first one I did, so it's at 75, like you say, and um, it is 75 
David Bowie career highlights. They may be, you know, most of them are happy occasions, but not all of them. Um, and this is a guy who definitely had a very full life. It's funny. Yeah, there is an Alice Cooper one. And I always, always joke with my buddies. I don't think anybody's lived a fuller life than Alice Cooper, not even David Bowie. I mean, that, that guy, that guy has lived like, like 150, uh, career highlights at least. Right. Um, yeah. But no, so the idea is just uh, is just right, you know, in a in very uh, com- you know compact uh, way, uh, just go through chronologically, uh, you know, picking first of all these seventy five you know career highlights to talk about, and then just just kind of put them all in order. Yeah, and you divide it up. You divide Bowie's life up into six phases, and I thought this was a really elegant way to do it. And let's just—I'll list out what they are, and then we can talk about each of the phases a little bit. But you've got the first era is pop singer, 1947 and 1972. I mean, you could quibble there and say he was a kid from 47 to 64, and then he was a pop singer from 64 to 72. But, you know, that covers all the different groups that he tried to do. His first solo album on DRAM, the Major Tom um, hit single in 1969. And then you've got Rockstar. 1972 to 1975, which is the Ziggy Stardust, the Aladdin Sane, Tony DeFreeze era of definitely conquering Britain and making headway into the United States. And then Musician from 1976 to 1983, after he splits with DeFreeze and then has this period of time where he's working with Iggy Pop and Brian Eno, making this critically lauded series of albums that goes on to be, I'd say, the definitive influence on British post-punk in the 80s. And then the showman era, 83 to 92, where he's, you know, one of the biggest stars on earth, at least at the beginning of that period, and then sees diminishing returns through that. Then rock icon to 93 to 2006, um, you know, the period working with Trent Reznor, getting inducted to the Hall of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that kind of stuff. And then artist from 2006 to 2016, which is kind of maybe the triumph of his life, the fact that he produced at least three really major albums in that period of time, which is so rare uh, for an artist. But how did you, did you set up this structure and, and were there any like hard decisions for you or things you might've done differently if you had a little bit, you know, are there other ways to divide David Bowie's life up? Yeah, it was pretty tricky because, um, you know, first of all, these six is not particularly tricky. I mean, that's one level of tricky, but the next level of tricky is um, you've got these career highlights that now you have to squeeze into these and the transitions between one or another. You know, at, at one point, it's like, if I remember correctly, it's like, okay, well. Uh, this this is good. This is good for Showman. You know, it goes up to here, but then I, there's one past that where I would have liked to have had back in Showman. So it gets a little little bit messy. But um, no, this was this uh, just an idea. I believe Dennis, uh, my my editor over there, does it does a great job. He's a great music man himself. He knows all this stuff. He um, I think he mentioned that. Um, can can you break it into four or six, you know, uh, sort of ideas? So, yeah, I guess just going through them. So, yeah, as you say, the, the first one is is where Bowie's sort of finding himself. He's he's a bit of a he he is a pop singer. He's a little bit of a, a Ray Davies kinks sort of storyteller. He's he's a bit of a psych guy. He's a bit of a almost like a British folk boom guy. 
he's uh, he's sort of a singer songwriter, which means, you know, it, it kind of makes sense to, to pair, you know, to put him together with other musicians. But he's a guy who's coming with songs and his acoustic guitar and his lyrics or whatever. Um, and that presupposes that you can do some covers and stuff as well. And then the whole rock star thing is just that crazy glam period where he is the top glam guy. You know, there's him and T-Rex and Gary Glitter and David Essex and all those guys and Sweet and Slade and Mud. And, um, but he's, he's basically the, the leader of that whole thing. Um, and then even though he's not particularly a huge rock star, um, he's, he's actually playing a character who's a, who's a rock star uh, in, you know, there's a bit of meta going on with the whole Ziggy thing. And then musician, as you say, I mean, I, I feel like, um, I, I feel like that's where he's, he's put aside uh, all that, even thinking about the fame stuff. And he's even becoming more, you know, sincere as a true artist. And then showman is, is all about, you know, the, the whole let's dance Aaron tonight and never let me down and all that, where it's, uh, where it's the big stage shows and maybe, and maybe the records, are not as well received um and then yeah the rock icon phase is is a little bit more fluid it's a little bit more of the um of when all of our favorite classic rock artists have these victory laps sort of thing right um where you're really getting into a stage where the records are are you know being critically acclaimed but not selling very much and then at the end he's he's literally back like after having a few kind of trendy things going on there uh you know searching for direction he's back to the the purity of that of that musician phase again with the with that artist phase um where again you know it's it's again a little bit fluid but the main thing that you get there i mean i i would i would argue that this this whole artist phase actually really would start with um with heathen uh, you know heathen reality the next day and black star all together but so here's the messiness showing on i i see i've got it you know it put us 2006 well after 2006 you only get the two albums the next day and, and black star so yeah I, I thought it was a nice uh a nice way of giving him a compliment at the end um but also just showing all these phases he went through and, and the searching that goes on and how, you know, some of them are less creatively sincere or creatively admirable and other ones are more. Um, and then, and then the beauty of it is he, you know, he, he ends the last 10 years. He's absolutely a pure artist. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's sad that, that he died at 69 and that we lost him, but there really is a happy ending when you look back at the last, say, 25 years of his life. He's happily married through that whole period. He's uh, creative. He's productive. He struggles with his health, has a heart attack in, in 2004, I want to say, that that you know limited his public performances afterward. But he continued to work in the studio through that whole period, you know, uh, living with a mom and raising a daughter in New York. So I feel like... He, went off into the sunset pretty much universally beloved when when that last album dropped in 2016 on his birthday and then he passes away two days later i mean the shock uh felt around the world was was palpable and very comparable to the outpouring of grief for prince who died that same year so let's go ahead and hear our first song though this is blue jean from pretty early in his showman period this was off the tonight album Oh, blue jeans. This heaven is sweeter than blue jeans. 
And that was Blue Jean, the hit single that, as you say, dragged the Tonight album over the finish line, as it were. And and so, you know, I've done an interview previously with Paul Trinka and spent a lot of time on on his earlier career up up to Let's Dance. And it's pretty, you know, a lot of people are kind of down on this period of his his work. But as a business person, you have to take your hat off to him that he patiently waited until all of his agreements with his ex-manager, Tony DeFries, had expired. And then he signs the big album deal. And then he gets with Nile Rodgers and he makes the massively successful Let's Dance album, which lands him on the cover of, I believe, Time magazine. And you know, suddenly he's a stadium superstar in America and does a tour that nets, I believe, 20 million was the was, or gross, 20 million. Um, or he came home with 20 million at the end of all that. But then... He struggled to follow it up. Tell us a, bit, a little bit about the, the the serious Moonlight tour and the aftermath and why he struggled so much with Tonight. Like for a guy who had seemingly had absolute control over his career and what he wanted to do throughout the late 70s and early 80s, he didn't really seem to know how to follow up Let's Dance. Yeah, you know, that period, I, I think there's there's that temptation of all the money. And, and you get, you know, I as I probably, I think I said in the book, I mean, it, and with ZZ Top and with Hart, um, where they do follow up and they stick with, with all of these 80s tropes kind of thing. I mean, he was probably, he probably completely surprised himself with how successful Let's Dance was. It was, there was a whole fashion thing going on with the suits and the short, you know, the blonde hair and that, Um and it and it was a it it had some really strong songs on it, but uh, you know in 1983 uh, many of these tropes were still pretty fresh. Um, but you do see a real uh, kind of uh, you know a true repeat the formula again. You've got you've got you know Iggy Pop song again. Don't look down uh, there from from New Values. Uh, you've got tonight. Uh, you know the Lust for Life sort of situation going on there, a neighborhood threat. So it's like, okay, we're going to do this again, kind of thing. Um, you know, I I think I keep forgetting that and dancing with the big boys. You get too many different things going on on this um, production wise. You know, it's you can get to a point with these artists and with some of these records, like I'm down on this period as well. And, you know, you really want to think that these guys are geniuses and they know what they're doing all the time, but they can make mistakes, right? Where, where you're, where you, you as a listener lose confidence in the band. And I think that's kind of what happened here as well. Um, the stage shows just got too crazy. Uh, it, it just, I see, I saw this with rush as well, right? This idea of, um, you know, on the on the positive uh, creative end of things, um, these people are uh, enthusiastic lovers of music and technology and trends. And so when you're an early adopter, when you want to get in early on things, you tend to overdo it. Right. Um, so, you know, rush with power windows and hold your fire. You know, these these sorts of things don't particularly stand up that that well. Um so, so you know, the, the early adopters have that problem where they go in and they overuse this stuff that is not particularly, um, you know, developed yet. Uh, and, no, and through no fault of their own, what happens is, is 10 or 20 more albums sound like that right after the fact. And then, and then a couple years go by and people forget kind of who was first with all these things. So, so you really do have these three albums in a row that are, that are literally their, uh, you know, eliminator, afterburner, recycler uh, kind of thing with Bowie. Um, 
So yeah, and you know the the old hits didn't sound as good um, with with these sort of configurations as well. It was just it was just too dancey, but at the same time, kind of like a hard hitting aggressive danceiness that you got with them. Yeah, it's just kind of a head scratcher, and and the you know bringing in Hugh Padham who had produced the Police. Instead, I, I, I assume Nigel Rogers was busy with Madonna or something, and, and that's why he didn't come back with Bowie, or maybe they were burned out on each other. But it seemed like going back to the well with Nigel Rogers would have been the obvious uh, move. And New Padham, you know, was coming off an immensely successful run with the Police, but where he'd already played with a lot of these '80s sounds, and it's just, I don't know, it just really feels like Bowie and Padham were both burned out and and not bringing a lot of creativity to it. There's also a kind of an unsettling one of the highlights that you you feature in the book is this Rolling Stone cover story that was David Bowie straight. And tell us a little bit about this. Like, you know, David Bowie had obviously famously come out as bisexual or I guess initially claimed to be gay in the early 70s. And that was a big part of the scandal and, and the frisson around Ziggy Stardust was here's an openly bisexual rock star, which is the first time that it happened. I mean, he beat uh, you know, Elton John and even little Richard to the punch uh, on that. But by the eighties, he's trying to pull back, but did he mean for it to seem as reactionary as it came out um, in Rolling Stone? Yeah. It's, it's almost like a metaphor for everything we just said about the career itself. So now he's, he's the commercial guy, the stakes are higher. He wants to be seen as more mainstream. Everything, everything about the whole situation right now is more mainstream. So what can he do on the sexuality side? He can, he can downplay that. Um, and, and, you know, say it was kind kind of just, you know, uh, to, to be shocking or whatever, um, or, or to say, you know, I fixed myself or whatever you right. You know, the, the, I, the idea here is that is that now he's mainstream. He's he's a you know a, a clean cut guy. He's got the suits on and he's and he's playing these uh, you know upscale uptown sort of t- songs, right? You know Billy Joel, Uptown Girl, right? Yeah. Um, you know it's it's this it's this urban uptown uh, sound. It's a swanky sound that he's got. So yeah, it 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 didn't come off right. Um, and you know in that Rolling Stone thing, they they kind of pounced on it and and emphasized that part of it, and it, and it got him in some trouble. And if I remember correctly, um, I guess what which with what was going on in the in the AIDS situation, um, he was not particularly connected to that or 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 you know speaking out about that kind of thing. So there might have been a, a kind of abstract distancing from you know the nastiness of AIDS going on at the same time. Yeah, I, th- I think this is where his kind of dilettante approach to his sexuality really kind of showed his ass and that that he wasn't connected to the community and he wasn't attuned to the fact that so many people were dying so suddenly even people that he had worked with like klaus nomi you think that would have kind of gotten his attention um but it just apparently didn't and and so this was kind of a bad period for him also i was calling Nile rogers nigel rogers for some reason i think i've been watching spinal tap too many times so apologies to (laughs) mr rogers for that one but uh but another sad thing happens around this time, and that's the death of his half-brother, Terry Burns. And Terry Burns is this very shadowy figure in the Bowie story, but he's really essential. I mean, this is the older brother who introduced David to central London, to Zen Buddhism, to science fiction, beat poetry, rhythm and blues and rock and roll. How did 
their relationship evolve? Were they close when when Terry died? And and how did Bowie acknowledge the death of his brother? Yeah, it it did sound like they were quite close, and it did it did disturb him. Um, you know, and and part of the way it disturbed him is is you know he's thinking in a personal sense. I mean, he had some other mental illness in his family. I think with his his aunt or mother or or both or definitely an aunt, I believe. I I, I can't quite remember the story, but. Um, yeah, so so he's he's a little bit worried about the situation genetically as well, but uh, but yeah, he just finds the whole thing incredibly sad, and and like you say, I mean, you know, he he was a big influence on him. He 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 really sort of got him into counterculture stuff at the same time. So yeah, it was uh, it, it was definitely something that uh, disturbed him, and it was always there. You know, he always had a pretty private family life, and it was. Not the most connected family life, but you could tell there was there was still you know feelings there. Yeah, and the, and the eulogy that he wrote for his brother, referencing um, tears in the tears lost in the rain, it made me think of Blade Runner, and I wondered if he had seen that. But let's go ahead and play our next song. This is "I'm Afraid of Americans" from the 1990s. jumping 15 years or so this is i'm afraid of americans and this was the trent reznor remix and the trent reznor was a big part of the video and we'll get to the trent reznor part uh in a second i still there's a couple more things in the 80s i have to come back to and one of them is this dancing in the street video and single collaboration with mick jagger that was part of of the live age show it wasn't it was originally planned that they would sing it together transatlantically like one was on uh, you know, the British side of the Atlantic and the other was in America, but there was a half second delay, so they couldn't do that. So they made this video and then dropped the video as part of it. Now, for me, as somebody who is 15, 16, when that video came out, it was awful. <laughs> and it was on the uh, it was on the MTV and uh, USA Today's uh, video show all the time. And I really feel like that video did more to kill Mick Jagger's solo career and damage David Bowie's career than anything else they could possibly have done. How is this thing such a massive hit? And do you concur with me that it did serious career damage to both guys? Yeah, that's a pretty interesting idea. And I, and I guess I do con- concur because basically um, – Again, it's uh, it, there's a there's a little bit of an echo of uh, you know maybe the story by this point is coming out a little bit how un, you know under pressure with Queen didn't go so hot, um, but it was a great collaboration. It was on an original song as well. Um, but here he is doing it again and again. Um, it's reminding us of the collaborations within the band and the and the and the almost like too much collaboration with Iggy Pop recently again. Um, there's the blah 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 album to come, right? Um, but so so number one, um, you've got just these 
these two superstars again. So it's swanky. It's uptown. It's, uh, you know, the, these are like, uh, you know, two of the biggest rock stars in the world. It's this casual video where they're just kind of walking around and mugging with each other. But also, um, they're, they're doing a song that, that isn't particularly, um, doesn't seem particularly placed with either of them. And it also gives us echoes of Van Halen doing this song back on Diver Down, which is a song that essentially broke up Van Halen. I mean, that whole album. And having the having all those covers on it and stuff really caused a rift between uh, Eddie and Don Landy on one side and Ted Templeman and David Lee Roth on the other side. It had a lot of covers on it, but that was the one that Eddie didn't want to do the most, and and it seemed least like Van Halen. So now we're getting that bad blood all over again with the same song, right? Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely and and then it was was played over and over and over again, and it's a duet. Just the idea of a duet is like it's not one artist, it's not the other, it's not the Rolling Stones, it's only Mick. And you're right, Mick's got this solo career that's uh, that's you know she's the boss was not particularly uh, well reviewed, nor was uh, Primitive Cool, right? Um, so yeah, everybody wanted Rolling Stones albums, and everybody wanted David Bowie albums that that were not uh, Tonight and Never let me down and and you know frankly half of half of let's dance even right um although like i say i guess let's dance had a lot of goodwill attached to it because it was new and fresh but it was no longer new and fresh by the time of tonight yeah and let's dance also had front loaded all the best songs at the beginning which was a pretty classic standard trick in the 80s i mean <laughs> you know, you see it again all the way up through like NWA straight out of Compton where where you just have overwhelmingly great start to the album and then if it peters out, it peters out, and you just rewind the cassette and hear the first side again instead of going to the second. But yeah, um, but then you know it seemed like Bowie realized it, or well, I mean he did these mega tours. He does the the Serious Moonlight tour, and then the Glass Spider tour was a tour where pretty much collapsed under its own weight. You know the massive stage set, the the really overproduced Never Let Me Down album, which. Never Let Me Down was the last vinyl album I can recall flooding the clearance bins. Like uh, 87, 88, 89, you could find Never Let Me Down for a dollar, for 50 cents. I can remember seeing it with stickers, you know, from, you know, starting at 8.99 and then just slashed all the way down to 50 cents and nobody's still buying it. You know, it was just a pretty sad fall for, for somebody who had been so well regarded in the 70s and he just seemed kind of lost in the 80s. So then he tries this 10 machine move. And he reunites with the sales brothers, Tony and Hunt, who had been the rhythm section for Iggy, the Iggy Pop albums that he had produced um, in the 70s. Tell us a little bit about the sales brothers and what Bowie was trying to do with Tin Machine. Yeah, so this is an interesting thing where, um, you know how we all have those bands that we absolutely, absolutely would love to love and we're trying so hard to like them and you just can't do it? Uh, Tin Machine was that band for me, and I think it was that band for a lot of people. He, You know, if, on paper, when, when he says, I want to go back to gritty rock and roll, I want to make a, you know, a, a mean, visceral rock and roll album, number one, we, we, we kind of uh, are all enticed by that idea. But number two, that, that was never David Bowie anyways. So in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, even that's new terrain for you, right? Um, but the the way he approached it was, it just seemed like uh, it was a little bit, it was a little bit PIL anti-music, you know, rip it up and start again, post-punk uh, sort of thing. But but trying to 
you know, trying to do music that was uh, overtly or almost distractingly cantankerous and not enjoyable. So songs would just sort of shamble into being and then they'd shamble out and there'd be a lot of squalling noise. Um, but again, on paper, you think, wow, that's kind of cool. This this rock and roll. I love the first front cover. The, the front cover is amazing, right? Um, with them all in the suits there and stuff. Um, so yeah, you, you'd think it would be something that would be pretty good, but you just kept playing those songs and going, nope, nope, uh-uh, nope, no, no hooks, nope. no, you know, no logic to them. Um, just, just like, like weird brown tan a crew sort of bass lines going around and guitars making noise over the top of them. So, so yeah, it's, it's almost like he was making art for art's sake, but art and you know deliberately that nobody was really going to like yeah there's almost a, a pen you know doing penance aspect to that and the fact that they toured um t really hard with tin machine i mean he got out there on the road and and worked that material and worked it hard it was almost like he was clearing the decks and kind of paying penance for having gotten overexposed and and pretty flagrantly selling out um, which is a concept that doesn't seem to even have any salience in 2023, but was a big deal in the 80s. And I don't know, I think it worked out in the end. It's just kind of a David Bowie goes into remission kind of period or something. And then he comes out of it. And and the, the next phase, uh, you know, is this early 90s period. And, and I got to mention the Frederick Mercury tribute concert performance, because this is I think along with the concert for New York, it kind of frames this period in Bowie's career. And it helps him segue into beloved icon and out of people aren't worried about the new David Bowie album anymore, but they respect his his body of work. And especially when he's associated with somebody like Freddie Mercury, who had gone from. He was always beloved in England, but in America, he had Queen had been very much in the outs uh, in the 80s. And then when Freddie Mercury dies, I think Live Aid, uh, obviously before he passed away, Queen's performance was so magnificent at Live Aid that even America had to pay attention and say, wow, you know, hats off to Freddie Mercury there. But then he you know, dies tragically of AIDS and, and David Bowie reprises his duet of under, uh, under Pressure with Queen with Annie Lennox. And then he goes into the Lord's Prayer and really pisses off Brian May. Um, Stephanie's telling me I got to take a sponsor break before I let you address. You can gather your thoughts to talk about the Freddie Mar Mercury tribute concert while our sponsors talk to our audience. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, so the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, how do you evaluate that? And do you think that was a big part of Bowie sort of rehabilitating or taking this his rightful place as one of the great rock icons in this era? I don't know how important it really was for him in his career, but I think it's it's important uh, that it's it almost almost in the same somewhat positive, somewhat negative stance as you get with Dancing in the Street with um, with Mick Jagger. It's just this guy is rock royalty. Here he is. He's kind of expected to be there. They did under under pressure with Queen, you know, back in uh, what is it, 1980, 1981, Two, I think. Um, Yeah. So so they're back doing that again. And you're right. Yeah, there was there was the drama of, of having the Lord's Prayer there. And that just that seemed incongruous with the whole event and incongruous even with who David Bowie is kind of thing. It was, it was just kind of odd. Right. And it's a, you know, and it, it's a quiet, strange moment. Right. Um, you know, everybody's kind of uneasy with the whole thing. Right. Um, but yeah, the performance was good in that. But, but again, I think it's just, uh, it's just uh, reinforcing this guy, you know, as we are, as we are moving into this rock icon phase where he's kind of on his victory lap. He's just, he's just now, you know, part of rock royalty and that's why he's there doing this. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of the way he opened up the concert for New York in 2002, which was planned. It was that that was sort of like the successful version of maybe what he had been trying to do with the Lord's Prayer at Freddie Mercury. But I got to stop and talk about his marriage to Iman Abdul-Jamid. Um, I remember when that marriage happened, and all I knew about her was she's this incredibly beautiful, exotic model. And suddenly David Bowie's marrying her and you're like, well, he's a lot older than her. Right. And you know, she's Somali, he's British. Like how much are they going to have in common? But you really have to hand it to him. That marriage proved to be one for the ages. This seems to be in the love of their lives and, and a really beautiful thing. Yeah. And she was really smart and an entrepreneur too. And I think he could appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, she is like a re- remarkable statuesque, like you say, Somali model, um, and and a supermodel, really. Um, so so it uh, it sure looked good the two of them together, right? It was it was very yeah, interesting did. looking, and and um, yeah, she seemed very mature, and um, they seemed to um, keep any any form of scandal. You know, there 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 was some some uh, you know discord along the way, but they kept all of that out of the news. Um, so yeah, it it seemed uh, like you say it seemed it seemed like a happy situation. But again, one one of the neat things about it, um, I think uh, I, I I feel like um, you know David Bowie was impressed by her, you know, well beyond you know the obvious and the superficial, but just the fact that she uh, that she, she seemed to have a really good head on her shoulders. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 you can see it in the way she's handled her public duties as his widow and as the caretaker of his estate that that. Uh, she's done it with poise and command and and really done him proud, I think. And, and you know, I, I, I find it nice that they that he had a 
relatively normal, quiet life um, for the last 20 years of, of his life or so with him on. And, and his career in the same period, like you say, the pressure's off. People aren't paying a great deal of attention to what he's doing. It's the grunge era, the hip hop era, the techno industrial era. And David Bowie's kind of allowed to just do whatever. And he does a bunch of interesting things. Like he does the black tie, white noise album where he brings back Nile Rogers and he tries to you, you describe this really well, that it's a mix of hip hop, house, and dad rock melodies, <laughs> which mm-hmm. makes for a little bit of an incongruous listen, but, but it's interesting. And you can hear that he's engaging with what's going on at the time. He just isn't quite of it. And then he does the outside album where he brings back Brian Eno. And it's kind of got this overblown concept album thing that really doesn't make any sense. But the music's actually good. He keeps Reeves Gabriel's the pretty brilliant guitar player from Tin Machine, but puts him in a context with Carlos Alomar, and he brings back Mike Garson, his pianist from the early days, and uh, Erdal Kilsley, the the multi-instrumentalist, is there. And so, you know, it's interesting, Bowie tends to work with the same people over and over again, and sometimes he'll have these falling outs, but it's almost like he went back and reconnected with all the important people in his career and did an album with almost every one of them in this period. But yeah, and and I think what you also get again is that um, is that enthusiastic lover of culture and lover of what's current. So he's trying out all these different things, and Earthling is probably the most extreme example of that. Where where it is, you know, heart attack level, uh, you know, dancey industrial, right? Um, and then obviously you, you've got the association with uh, with um, Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails there as well. But yeah, the, the hip hop thing, there is the reconnecting with these guys. But even when he reconnects, you know, he, he wants them all to be moving rapidly forward into the modern age as well with them. Um, and then you get ours, which is... Um, which is my favorite from that period because uh, I like I like that it's the most dad rock out of all of them. It's the most acoustic and the most melodic. So so he he like does an about face there. I mean he's he's veering wildly back and forth through through a lot of things here. Um, and then and then as you mentioned, outside is the most challenging of all of them, and poss- possibly the most challenging album he ever did, the densest album he ever did. So uh, so it is very interesting that he is uh, he is still being highly highly creative. It's almost like it's almost like he's he's the radical avant-garde artist uh, on record um but then when he goes on tour that's where he goes out and kind of makes his money yeah and 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 some of that's kind of embarrassing like the breaking glass tour he he's got nine inch nails opening for him in america and he's got morrissey opening for him in the uk and in both instances the the fans coming to the show are essentially paying to see the opening act and frequently leaving before bowie even plays that had to have hurt yeah, and and this is the whole idea that you you can't stop um, the idea of rock and roll being a young person's game. You will eventually be you know rolled over, um, and uh, and you know he, credit to him, he he's he's not scared to pick absolutely you know white hot red hot acts at this point. Um, people who are highly uh, highly revered um and then and then both cases uh, people who had influence from bowie uh, themselves um but yeah and then he found ways to sort of sort of you know integrate with uh, with trent reznor as well so that was kind of cool um but yeah it's uh, you're you're right it it's uh, at at some point you just can't stop you just can't stop the turning of the wheel of the generations and uh, and that hurt him in both those cases
Yeah, but I'm glad that you you shouted out ours because I think that's the point at which he stops trying to chase the new and he just starts trying to make music to please himself. And I think that kind of shows that after ours comes out, every album he does, there's a sense of confidence. There's none of this trying to catch a trend or trying to imitate or trying to respond to other things. It's just him retreating into himself, picking musicians he wants to work with writing songs and making the album he wants to make. And it, and it results in, you know, several, really, several of his most powerful albums come out at the end, which is almost unheard of in rock and roll. I mean, very few people get better um, towards the end of their run. But let, let's play our next song. And this is, this is The Rays off of Heathen from 2002. That was The Rays off the Heathen album from 2002. And it was really hard to pick one song off that album. I hear that very much as an album. And it's one that I probably didn't pay attention to until about 2010 or so. But I, it's definitely an album I've... I've it, it had several weeks where it was my favorite album and I listened to it over and over. And that was the first time that it happened with David Bowie since probably Heroes or Scary Monsters. Um, uh, you know, and when I was listening to it secondhand, when my big brother was playing those albums obsessively. So, but it was, it was good to see him back on top. But I want to talk about two business moves he made before we get into his last period. In the '90s, he was one of the first artists to have a website that actually brought value, and he was one of the first artists to sell bonds against his songwriting portfolio. Talk about that. Like, what was it that Bowie saw that other people couldn't see? Well, he's many times uh, in in the business world. So, um, yeah, it, this was just a, a, an interesting scheme that uh, was ahead of its time. Um, and as time went on, it was more um, later on. It became more about selling your catalog, like selling it outright. Or, or your publishing rights. Um, but he, he was a pioneer in doing this as well. And then there were a few others that did it. But if I understand correctly, I'm, I'm just trying to remember how this sort of works. I mean, the fact that it was bonds um, meant that um, it was it was to raise funds. And then there was a paying back of the situation as well. So yeah. it's it's a little bit of a, a different situation than, than we've seen in recent years. Uh, you know, with Merck, uh, with Merck and uh, oh, what's the name of the company? Hypnosis, right? Um, yeah. That that they've been doing. Um, so that was interesting. And the website thing again is uh, is him just being absolutely inquisitive about everything. Um, and considering this culture, I mean, remember that early there was that famous fateful early interview uh, that he did where he was saying, "You just watch. This is going to be a big thing." And the interviewer kind of scoffs at him, says, "Ah, it's a toy, right?" Uh, kind of thing. Um, so he he was definitely a visionary about the whole internet um and uh, and yeah he, he was in early so again the whole thing about being an early adopter you end up doing a lot of heavy work and and maybe perhaps you don't really get credit for it because because technology starts changing on you so fast and when you look back i mean in this case uh you know it is part of the story and we're remembering that and i and i guess you know i'm 
I'm making sure that gets remembered by by putting it as a highlight in the book. But um, but really, how, how many people are going to remember, you know, how how um, how advanced David Bowie was, in, you know, in in the beginning of the internet? Um, but again, the the parallel is to the is to those old albums where where you know you will go back to those albums and just sort of scoff at them as as being too eighties. Well, when he was doing them in the eighties, again, um, you know, a lot of this stuff was fresh, and he was pioneering certain certain sounds and production techniques and stuff. Um, just as he did with the with the Berlin years kind of things, right? And and scary monsters for that matter, Lodger for that matter. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's just uh, this guy uh, having a mind that's just going a hundred miles an hour all the time. Yeah, and and continuing to grow and evolve, and and he brings and and this sense of of closing the circle. He brings back Tony Visconti, who had been a big part of. Um, the Ziggy Stardust period, the the kind of his closest collaborator, along with Mick Ronson, in that period. And I kind of wonder if Ronson hadn't died of liver cancer in the 90s, if he wouldn't have been invited back for some of this. But Visconti then goes on to work with, with Bowie on all of his final run of albums the next day, Black Star as well. How do you see that partnership? And how do you compare the the end run with Visconti versus the early run with Visconti? Well, the good thing about Tony Visconti is he's he's also a musician and he's also um, very bold with his ideas. He's a little bit like a Bob Ezrin in in that uh, in that respect. But it's it's not a given that everything he does is going to be a success. I mean, I I personally I'm I'm a big damned guy, damned expert, right? Um yeah. and I, I I wrote a book on the damned where I where I reviewed every single one of their songs uh, that they'd ever done and and I think the album they did with Tony Visconti wasn't very good and then they didn't go back to him for the next album, right? Um that was the Evil Spirits album. So I I really don't know um I it's it's nice to have another creative person in there and having said all that, I mean, these are good albums. Um and and what they are, um, I find that unites them all except the last one, is that they're all um, they're all song based and using pretty conservative tools to make all of those songs. Um, and there's and there's nothing particularly uh, there's no stamp that you can put on the likes of you know the next day and heathen basically in reality. I, I guess that sort of uh, that sort of run in there. Um, so I don't know how much of it we really have to put down to Tony Visconti or or the musicians. It's it just seems like it just seems like he's he's uh, he's really embracing the idea of good songs and and deciding that I'm going to put aside because even ours, I think, has a theme. And and I think on ours, the theme is to be overtly acoustic and melodic. And, and here he's more of like um a tough, a tough rock and roll guy. Um, but using, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a guitar bass and drum sort of thing. So yeah, it's, uh, it remains to be seen. I mean, it's, uh, maybe, maybe Tony over the years will give us interviews where we're, we're really going to see, uh, how much he was a, uh, a part of those things. But, uh, but I think it, it was more or less David Bowie's vision. Yeah, I think that's probably undeniable. And then you've got a kind of elegant way of describing the public's reaction to his run from heathen forward and you called a subtle reversion to the highly respected cult status that bowie had enjoyed from low to scary monsters and he really did it seemed like he just kind of i wouldn't say it was effortless because he spent the whole 90s kind of trying to find his feet and get back to this point but suddenly in the 2000s he's 
just the kind of artist that you hear there's a new David Bowie album and you're like, oh, cool, I want to check that out instead of being like eye roll or what embarrassing stunt is he up to now, you know? And, and uh, Exactly, yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's yeah, that's such, great. I, I like what you say there. And, and, and you used the word confidence earlier too, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he had the self, you know, it seemed to me like ours kind of just cleared the decks. And he says, I'm not going to try to chase Trent Reznor or hip hop or house music around. I'm not going to be worried about what they're doing in the, in the clubs. I'm just going to make music that I like. And that sounds good to me. And, and that was perfectly in tune with the times and, and very much apropos for the end of his career. But let's hear one last song. And this is the last song. This is Black Star from the Black Star album. Stands a solitary candle Black Star, the title song of the final album that David Bowie put out literally just days before he died. And it, it made no bones about it. I mean, it was very in your face about confronting his terminal illness and the nature of death and what do you do with your last moments. And as a fan, you have to say, well, thank you, David. That's exactly what you know we would want you to do is, is keep making this music that's made so many people happy as long as you can. And, but I want to talk a little bit about the next day album that, that came out in 2013, which was again, very apropos of the moment. How did they drop that album? And what was so novel about the the release of the next day? If I remember correctly, it just appeared. Um, It was, it was made under complete secrecy and it just appeared. Am I right about that? You are correct, and he does it. Yes, you know, it in and of course, the album cover is amazing, right? It's 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 you know the cover of uh, it's heroes, right? With the uh, yeah. and then with the with the white spot over it, with just the the black text, you know, kind of like a Helvetica text. You know, it it's it seems like such a crazy simple idea, but uh, you know, you go you, you you tip your hat to him, say nobody's ever done that before. Um, it was just a really cool idea. So so instantly you had this this link to the past. And you had this this radical, almost like Maria Abramovich. Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, but you know that whole performance yeah. art thing, that whole that whole radical New York performance art look to the thing uh, as well. Having done that, right? And then you've got, you know, of, of course, you know that the hand thing there is the Egon Sheila thing that he was doing. So 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 much art to this album cover and the music enclosed. But again, I, I guess it serves as this really cool metaphor of uh of tying in the present and the past, but doing it, you know, but the way he's doing it is in such a sophisticated way. It's just it, it's basically him saying, I am a pure radical artist like I was back in those Berlin days. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a way of him reclaiming that avant garde um title and and doing it really well it, and it was also perfectly al courant for the for the teens you know that the the was a, a number of artists did things like this did innovative things with album releases that were allowed because of the nature of the internet and and it was just very fitting that he was right on the top of it but let's talk about black star a little bit i mean 
what was the impact of Blackstar on you? And did you realize he was terminally ill when that album dropped or were you were you shocked? I was totally blindsided by his death. I mean, I kind of knew he was sick, but and I was processing Blackstar and realizing, whoa, he's really sick. You know, but then so quickly he passed away. What was your personal experience of the Black Star album? Wow. So so I, I would say that this is a little bit like ours in that it did have a little bit of a stylistic stamp and it and it, it of course was um you know i say that in a good way rather than i would say in a bad way those 80s albums had that and in a bad way earthling i mean earthlings one i really have it in for always right i never liked earthling <laughs> but um but here i think the stamp is um unlike unlike the previous few albums that were pretty rocked up um, I think here you get uh, something that, that I always I, when I heard it, I, I thought of Krautrock immediately. I, I thought of literally this sounds like like German rock from and, and a little bit like Vandergraaf Generator and Peter Hamill solo. Um, so it's got a little bit of the classical bent in there with the, with like the, the tenor sax and the flutes and all that kind of thing. Um, a lot of piano. Right. Um, so it's uh, it's an interesting album in that I think, like I say, like ours, I think it has a stylistic stamp that's different from the generalist stamp of the three before it, um, and that's really cool. It's like him still moving forward, even though he's about to die on us, right? Uh, he's still moving forward and coming up with a new configuration, something fresh, something he's never done before. Um, you know, having all those years worth of albums, he's never had quite this sonic palette used. And and it was it was a fairly deliberate sonic palette throughout. And there's a there's a little bit of electronics in there as well, just to keep it really cool and urban and urbane. Um, so yeah, it it and it was a dark album as well. So that again, um, you know, gives you that sort of continental German krautrock feel from Amandul Two or something like that, right? Um, so yeah, I, I I found it really interesting that way. Um, not a lot of songs, but then we got some other songs later. Um, you know, it's it's amazing that he was working up to that. And, and literally, again, like uh, like Maria, um, you know, it's he he's almost like treating his death as uh, as his last work of performance art. So is is the record the last work, or is it, or is just the process of dying that that's his last sort of creative triumph? Yeah, and that is a triumph. I mean, to 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 take control of your own death like that. I mean, it wasn't something he sought or something he wanted. He very much wanted to see his daughter grow to adulthood. Wasn't able to do that, but he was able to go out on his own terms and make his statement and give us all something to think about. You know, my father-in-law died at 69 around the same time, and and he took up painting in his final days, and that that was really inspiring to me. And I think there's something about creating art that is innately a good thing. And 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 Bowie's life was all about art, and you make that very clear in this wonderful book. My guest has been Martin Popoff. The book is Bowie at seventy-five. I highly recommend it to any David Bowie fan. It's one you can just flip through. Wonderful pictures, sums up the the whole story of his life beautifully. And, and Martin, thanks for the book, and thanks for coming on the show. Yes, thank you, Nate. This was fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg will be back with more discussion of Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast 
And you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheompodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.